Daniel 6, 25 through 28. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble in fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be, be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So to this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for this morning. Lord, thank you for um, these people who um, got up in the colder weather and um, have chosen to be here to worship corporately, with, um, to worship you. Jesus, I um, pray that you would um, speak to our hearts through the book of Daniel um, and the story of Daniel and the ways that you um, rescued and saved him. And Jesus, I pray that you would, um, even if it's a familiar story, that you would um, just grant us the ability to pay attention and learn something new um, and see you in a new way. Um, Jesus, just um, continue to speak to our hearts and our lives um, and change us to be more like you. Jesus, we love you so much. It's in your name we pray. Amen. If you've got a Bible, go ahead and turn it over to Daniel chapter 6. That's where um, we're going to be this morning. And you know, anytime you're getting ready to, to preach and teach on a, a, a subject, a, a, really in particular what we've been doing this whole semester, stories that are, are pretty popular to the church. Uh, but, it's, but especially a lot of the ones we've been doing are some of the biggest ones you learn if you grew up in the church. So how many people are familiar with the story of Daniel in here this morning, by the way? Yeah, pretty much the entire church. Because we're in the South. Most of us grew up going to church or at least knew somebody that went to church. And so we're familiar with a lot of the stories that are, that are going on in here. And so most of you are, are, are pretty familiar with the story of Daniel. Um, but one of the, you know, he, he, he was this leader and he was the king's right-hand man. And then... Um, you know, they, they, they tell him he's not allowed to pray to his God anymore. He still continues to pray to his God three times a day. He gets thrown into a lion's den. And one of the things that's fascinating to me about this story is, is Daniel exercises great faith in God throughout the entirety of the book of Daniel. And what, so what ends up happening typically is when you, when you hear a sermon about Daniel in the lion's den, or you're in a Sunday school class, or a community group, or a Bible study, or when you, uh, you know, you're, 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 you're a little kid and you're, you're doing your children's church time, the, what typically gets taught on this particular story is, hey, look at Daniel. Look at the faith of Daniel and what a great example he is to us and, and how we should follow after him. And, and, and really what ends up happening is they make, they make Daniel out to be the hero of the story. They make Daniel's example out to be what we should strive to be and what we should be. And, and you know, there's one of those interesting moments when you're, you're, you're reading the Word of God, you're in the Word, and you say, well, yes, I mean, certainly something we take away from the text here is that Daniel did exercise great faith. But as we've seen over and over again, over the course of this fall, as we've been working through the Old Testament kind of systematically, is the hero of the Old Testament is not these, Old Testament is not these individual men, women, families, or prophets, teachers, kings. It's not the men and women that we see in the Old Testament, but the common denominator in every one of these stories is who? God. The, the common denominator in Abraham's faithfulness, David's faithfulness, Isaiah's faithfulness, Daniel's faithfulness, uh, Noah's faithfulness, even in the midst of Adam and Eve's disobedience and betrayal, the common denominator weaved throughout the Old Testament, is God's love and faithfulness to his people, his beloved creation. 
And, and so this is something I, th- I think we often do, is because human beings are by definition on some level narcissistic and lovers of self, right? What happens is when we open up the Bible, we tend to place ourselves and the human beings as the centerpiece of the story that we're reading. It's a, it's a common thing we do. We even do it strangely like with sports, okay? And since most of us are Gator fans in here, I'll, I'll use the Gators as my analogy this morning. Okay, so when the Gators won their last national championship, yeah, I think some, most of you guys were alive for that, right? I'm not talking about too long ago, right? Okay, so when the Gators won their last football national championship, all right, who, who do you, who's the first name that pops in your mind when you think of that, that, that championship team? Tebow, exactly, right? The guy's got a freaking statue outside the stadium, right? Right? Maybe, maybe someone else, right? Percy Harvin, right? You think, about, you think about him. You think about maybe some of the linemen who made it to the NFL afterwards and were really, really good, right? Or even maybe, right, if you understand football and how important coaching is, you say, well, Urban. Urban's really popular. I know I just said his name. I'm sorry, Gator fans. He betrayed you. I'm sorry, right? You got a little revenge last night. He lost to Penn State. Okay, but here, here's the thing that I always find so fascinating. When people talk about these, these great college football teams or these great college sports teams, you know who never gets talked about with any credit for what happened for that last national title? Jeremy Foley. Who has created a culture of winning in a great athletic department over at that university? Jeremy Foley, right? Who hired Urban Meyer? Jeremy Foley right, who continues to, right, as he's, I think he's, is he done yet? He's going to retire like literally any day now, right? But he's instituted a culture there, and yet we, right, because what we want to see is in front of us, we love exciting, we love the flashiness or whatever, we gravitate to what's thrown right in front of us, and we tend not to spread the honor, right, or the attention, or distribute things evenly, right? And so, As we continuously do this through our lives, it works the same way even in the story of Daniel, right? Where we see Daniel exercising his faith, right? Going forward and walking with the Lord the way he feels like he's supposed to. And then we read the story and we're like, man, Daniel is the hero. I love this guy. We need to, you know, preach and teach about how great he is and focus in on that. And guys, we miss pretty much the entire second half of Daniel chapter 6 if we let that be our focus and our attention. Because Daniel actually doesn't play a very large role in this story. The hero of this story is God. In two planes, in the way that he saves and rescues Daniel, but also in the way that he saves and rescues King Darius. Right, look at, look at the text with me, right, starting in verse 1. We're going to go through the entire chapter this morning, so bear with me. Some really quick, brief background before I read this, so that you know where we are in the grand history of Israel's timeline. Is, last week we talked about Isaiah and how Isaiah was warning against the uh, way in which Israel was walking away from God and not loving him, uh, talking about the promise of who God was going to send to rescue Israel and, and bring them back to God. And so by this point in the narrative of the Old Testament, we are at the point now where the Babylonian Empire has come in and conquered Israel. And what they did is they scattered Israel all over the place 
so that they wouldn't rebel. And then they took a lot of children that were higher up, right, in, in the leadership of Israel, and they took them back to the Babylonian capital as captives, basically. And this was a way to make sure that the old leadership of Israel would stay in line and not rebel because their children were under Babylonian uh, captivity. And so what would happen is, is when these, these children would get taken away, they would start trying to kind of reprogram them culturally, right? To try to teach the God of the Bible out of them and start teaching them about the Babylonian culture, way, life, and gods. And so the story of Daniel is some faithful Israelites in the midst of this captivity are continuing to talk about the grace and goodness and belief in God and his promises. And so Daniel happens to be one of these captives. And actually, probably by the time this story rolls along, he's probably about 70 years old. Okay, and so he's in the court, right, and he's, on, he's there in uh, the Babylonian capital with King Darius, and here's what happens. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom, and over them three high officials, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give account so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him and the king planned to set over him the entire kingdom. And so basically what the author of Daniel is kind of sharing with us is, hey, is King Darius is setting up the org chart for the kingdom of, of Babylon, okay? And at the top is King Darius, right? And then underneath him will be kind of like three, three leaders uh, called the high officials. And then underneath him will be your satraps. And then underneath them is kind of just the people and what they're doing. And it's kind of like if, you, if you're over at the university, you have the president, right? And then underneath the president, you have the deans of the various schools. And then underneath that, right, you have the department heads of various departments, right? So if you're an engineering major, right, you might report to your department head if you are an industrial engineering major. But your industrial engineering major department head reports to the dean of the College of Engineering who reports to the president of the university. And so the way that this is kind of being set up is there's going to be three people overseeing the entire kingdom and they're kind of in charge of oversight. And one of those three people happens to be Daniel. It says that he became distinguished above other leaders because of an excellent spirit. Now, I want to I stop there for a second and just think about this because this is, this is important for us to process through because especially in the U.S., we've been going through a pretty large cultural shift in the way that the world thinks and approaches the church and believers, okay? And there's also been a shift philosophically in many ways at how Christians and the church have been taught to approach work and think about work, okay? So when, when the author says that Daniel had an excellent spirit in him in the way that he approached his work, he, he's saying this, Daniel's theology and belief about God and who he was caused Daniel to live honorably, trustworthy, and work hard. And in that, so honored God and made much of him in the midst of Babylonian captivity. Okay? Now one of the, the, the things that's fun for me to do, and it's kind of a consistent theme in ministry with younger people over the last um, you know, 10 years or so, is there's this tendency you guys get to college, college students, I'm talking to you for a second, okay? 
You guys get to college, and either you're a believer when you get here, or you're not a believer when you get here, okay? And then you get involved in a campus ministry over at the university. You know, so crew, navigators, intervarsity, FCA, uh, RUF. There's a lot of good ones here at UF, okay? And you get involved there, and you're around a bunch of people who love Jesus, and you're kind of in this, like, containment cell, and you're being told, be on fire for the Lord you know, let's, let's just wind you up and let's go do things. And it's awesome and it's exciting, okay? And then what happens over the course of kind of like a couple years in that ministry, you start morphing and thinking the only way I can really love the Lord and really serve the Lord is if I go into full-time ministry. And so I'm either called to be on campus ministry staff or I'm called to be a pastor or I'm called to go start this awesome nonprofit ministry that's going to dig wells in Africa. You know, you just come up with all these awesome ideas and things that you want to do because you've kind of been taught this idea of, of a theology of work that's centered that the only work that has any value is things that are done directly in line with the mission of the church. And here we see in Daniel chapter 6 that a good theology of work is all-encompassing. Yes, it includes what I would call full-time or part-time vocational ministry, but it also means that a mechanic can be a really, really good mechanic and love Jesus, and that's going to show the world that he loves the Lord. That means an engineer can go to the University of Florida, get a degree that takes them about 30 years to finish, right? Love you guys. I love, anytime someone says, I'm a freshman, I'm an engineer, I'm like, all right, this guy's going to be around for a long time, or this lady's going to be here a long time, this is exciting, right? But you could come here, get a degree, and then after that is all said and done, you can leave and go be an engineer and make much of Jesus in the way that you live your life, right? That, that you don't have to enter full-time ministry to serve the Lord. Right? And I know some of you guys are like, yes, amen, thank you. My discipler was yelling at me that I needed to apply for staff. Right? Right? The, the reality is, is some of you guys may very well be called to full-time vocational ministry. But some of you guys need to go into the field that you're passionate about. Right? Guys, the world needs nurses and doctors that love Jesus. The world needs lawyers and judges that love Jesus. Yes, God loves lawyers too, okay? All right? The world needs public school teachers that are going to love Jesus. The, the world needs preschool teachers and daycare workers and babysitters that love the Lord, right? We need people, right, that love Jesus working in business settings, and will not compromise their love of the Lord to make an extra buck. We need people that love the Lord in different layers of the government and politics, guys. And so when we see what Daniel's going on here, guys, and I, I, saw, I saw a few snickers when I said politics there. I, I know we're in the middle of the election season, so we're all jaded right now, right? But this is exactly where Daniel is. He's in the throes of a government that doesn't love God, who actually is trying to destroy the advancement of who God is, and Daniel, in the midst of that, has risen and elevated because of his consistency and love towards God and obedience and walking with him. And so let's look at this and let this be a reminder to even, guys, think about how the church started in the midst of oppression. Will you throw Acts chapter 2 up there for me, Josh, for a second? It, 
In Acts chapter 2, I love this because Peter preaches this amazing sermon in Jerusalem right after Pentecost. And after this is all said and done, um, Luke starts explaining how uh, people are getting saved and baptized and the church is growing. And then look at what he says towards the end of chapter 2. And he says, and day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. This is the disciples and the new believers. They receive their food with glad and generous hearts praising God, and look at this, and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Guys, the reason why the church took off so dramatically in the beginning is because faithful people who loved the Lord stayed in their jobs, stayed in their neighborhoods, stayed in their families, and did the hard work of loving Jesus well in the midst of everything that was else was going on, right? There was only the 12 in full-time ministry at this point. And then Paul comes along later and he works part-time and then also is in full-time ministry. And yet the church exploded during this season because of the faithful witness of the saints. That's everyday people, not pastors, right? I know Paul gets a lot of credit, but it was the entire church that took the message of the gospel forward. And so guys, like Daniel, your theology and what you believe about God will dictate how you live. And your theology needs to dictate how you're going to work. Students, in this season, that means your job is to be a good student at the University of Florida. Right? How many of you guys in here are on Bright Futures right now? good portion of you. Do you know who pays for that? Me. And the other people with jobs in here, okay? To not work hard is to not only dishonor, right, your God-given gifts, abilities, and talents. It's to steal from the taxpayers that have put money in to say, you know what, as a state, we value education here. We're going to provide a way for you to work hard. Right? We want you to work hard, we want you to get a degree, and we want you to go back out into the workforce with a skill or a trade right, that will take you all over the place and allow you to do all sorts of things. Right? It's the same way if someone has a full-time job, steals from their employer by not giving 100%. Allow your theology to dictate, and what will happen is that people will start to take notice. It is impossible for you to be trustworthy, honest, and a hard worker and that go unnoticed in the American work environment. I promise you that as someone who worked in the banking industry for well close to 10 years, that it is impossible for that to go unnoticed. Coincidentally, real quickly, if you're interested in learning more about that intersection of theology and work, I would highly recommend Tim Keller's book, Every Good Endeavor to You, right? It's a fantastic book. Pretty much everything that Tim Keller does is fantastic, but this book in particular is really, really good. And I think really for a lot of you college students, it'd be really good to kind of give you a good framework and foundation to work off of as you're heading into the workforce. Okay, so back to our story, right? Daniel is this hardworking, trustworthy guy at one of the highest levels of the Babylonian government. And it says that basically King Darius notices this and he's kind of like, I'm, I'm elevating him to the top. Right? He's going to be my CFO. He's going to be the vice president. I'm going to elevate him. 
Now, imagine how that is going to go over in Babylon. An, is, an Israelite foreigner is going to be elevated to basically position number two within the kingdom and the government of one of the greatest empires in existence at this time. So, we get to verse 4 and 5 and look at how the rest of the workers in King Darius's government respond. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. But they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, what we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Okay, so jealousy leads the other leaders within the government to um, basically try to find a way to do, to do away with Daniel. Okay, and a lot of people like you can sit here and try to question and, and, and come up with a number of motives of why they would do this. You know, one, they just want the position themselves. Two, he's a foreigner. How can we let a foreigner have this much power within our government? This isn't good. But I think probably one that, a, a reason that ultimately gets overlooked and probably in reality is the most likely reason why they're doing this. Daniel, and, and the author has made it abundantly aware why he's doing this, has been faithful and trustworthy throughout his entire time in working with the government. Believe it or not, guys, not everyone that works in government or business is trustworthy and honest. And what most likely was happening is, is these people, that these, these satraps and these high officials were using their governmental influence to make money and increase their power. And they knew that if Daniel was put in a position of authority over them, guess what Daniel's going to do? He's going to clean house. He's not going to put up with backdoor deals. He's not going to put up with them moving themselves into positions that they're not supposed to be in, using their positions for bribes and, and, and other things like that. And, and so really this would prevent them from using their role for personal motives. And so what, they see this as a threat really not just to, the, to the, the culture of the Babylonians, but more so a personal threat to them and their way of life. And so Daniel being elevated means they're going to be marginalized and not allow, be allowed to get away with what they've been doing throughout the Babylonian Empire. And so th this is important to remember, right? Because we, we tend to have this experience and this belief of, of blessing and how blessing comes. And if someone's elevated to these higher positions or gets put in these really, really important positions or is making money or whatever else, that automatically God's just blessing them and everything's going great, right? And on the outside, you see King Darius blessing Daniel and all these things being set up in his favor. And yet knowing internally what's going on around him, in the midst of that blessing and that elevation of power and influence that Daniel's going to have, he's got an entire group of people that are trying to undercut him at the same time. So just because you were elevated and blessed with position doesn't mean it's going to come without trial. Right, guys, if you look at someone, you're like, oh man, that, that person has it all, or they had a great family life or whatever, it doesn't mean they haven't walked through difficulties. It doesn't mean that they won't walk through difficulties. It doesn't mean that if you get the right job or the right promotion or you get the right degree that the rest of your life is going to be easy, smooth, and comfortable and nothing's going to go wrong. But these guys are turning on Daniel and trying to find a way to, to, to get him fired, basically, and they can't find anything. And so they say, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Hey, the only way we can get Daniel is, is, is to get him on his love of God. We've got to find a way 
to use his faithfulness against him because otherwise he's going to do the honest and trustworthy thing every time and we're not going to be able to get him. So look at what happens in verse 6. They, they, they devise this scheme. Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and the injunction. So the other leaders, knowing Daniel and his faith, devise a plan to get rid of him. Right? And they sweet-talk the king and they appeal to his vanity and his love of himself. Right? Hey, this is a really great idea, Darius. If anyone prays to anyone other than you for the next 30 days, they need to be done away with. So this way they know that they can catch Daniel and his devotion to God and use their political motivation to arrest him for his faithfulness to the Lord. Um, real quick aside, guys, because we're in the middle of a political season and this is highly political what's being done to, to Daniel here. As I'm sure you've seen over the last six months, politics are messy. Okay? And one of the things that we need to remember as the church is that we should be informed. We need to be praying for everyone involved. And we can be involved in the political process as we feel led. But something I think the church has done over the course of probably the last 40 or 50 years here that I think is really causing so much strife in the church right now is we became more interested in the power of politics than the power of the gospel. And what's starting to happen is the party that the church most frequently aligned itself with is kind of a hot mess right now, right? Okay. If, you, if you're a supporter of them in here, I'm, I'm just speaking it like it is, okay? And when that power and influence starts to shrink, right, people start to freak out, okay? Guys, here is an opportunity for you as a follower of Jesus, if you are one here this morning, to be involved, to make a decision, to listen to arguments and respond in a way that you think is trustworthy and biblical and makes much of Jesus. And then in the midst of anything, no matter who gets elected, guys, God is still God the next morning. God is still God the next week, the next month, the next year, and the next thousand years for the rest of eternity. Okay? Um, empires have risen and fallen over the last 2,000 years. A lot of them. Guess who hasn't gone anywhere? Jesus. <laughs> Guess what has continued to spread and expand and grow over the course of the last 2,000 years? The church. Guys, Jesus' kingdom is not of this world. He cares about this world, but it's not of this world. This is why Jesus didn't lead an insurrection against the Romans when he came. Okay? And so it's important for us to remember in the messiness of this political season where we see things like that are very much going on right here, 
around us. Guys, you serve an amazing God who's not going anywhere, okay? In 20 years, we may look like the Israelites that were living in Babylon. Guess what? God is still sovereign. He was in the book of Daniel, okay? Or everything may change and it may look like Zion. I don't know what it's going to be like here in 20 years here. Either way, God is sovereign. Remember that the sky is not falling unless Jesus returns, and it's a good thing if he comes back, okay? All right? So remember that as you head to the polls here in a few weeks, and as you engage your friends, family, neighbors, and other brothers and sisters in Christ during this season right now, because this is the most tense I've ever seen it in my lifetime, okay? Now back to the story. Darius writes this law, puts it, passes it, and puts it into uh, practice and says, look, you know, you need to, if you're going to pray and you're going to worship, you can only worship or pray to me over the course of the next 30 days. This is a common practice amongst rulers in ancient, ancient times, right? If you know anything about Roman history, see, the Caesars eventually put themselves as the chief god that, that was supposed to be worshipped in the kingdom of Rome, okay? And so Darius writes this law and establishes according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, and that's a really important note to pull out of there. Um, if, if a law in, Bab in, in Babylonian law, if a king passed this sort of injunction or law underneath their code of rules, it was not allowed to be overturned by the king because it would make the king look really weak and make, make it seem like the king didn't know what he was doing when he passed a law. And so if you passed some sort of legislation the way that King Darius does, he can't go back even on his own word. Which is kind of fascinating to think about because he's the one that wrote the law into to being the law of the land. You would think he can just change his mind. But in that culture, it was a big no-no if you did something like that. You would be seen as weak and you would allow an opportunity for political opponents to rise up against you in that situation. So Darius knows the moment that he signed this into law, he's got to follow through on it. But he thinks nothing of it. He's like, this isn't a big deal. Everyone loves me. I'm a great king. We're the biggest empire in the world. This is not a problem. We've gotten rid of the Israelites. They're not worshiping their God. You know, this isn't, this isn't a big deal. And so he signs it into law. And we get to verse 10 when Daniel hears about it and look at his response. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. And he got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. Then they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any god or man within 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? And the king answered and said, The king stands fast according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who was one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king. Or the injunction you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. So Daniel has made the, the decision in his life God over country. That's what he said. God, God over country in this situation, right? I remember early on 
right, as a new believer, something that really, really struck me because I come from a family with a military background and I happen to be pretty proud of the country I live in. My favorite commercial of all time is that sweet Dodge Charger commercial with Robin Williams dressed as George Washington storming, right, the field in a Dodge Charger with the American flag coming out. Right, I, I should have gotten this commercial to show you guys because some of you guys don't know what I'm talking about. Right, but George Washington charges into battle on a Dodge Charger, and then the Dodge guy comes on. And is like America got two things right: cars and freedom. Right? And, you know, it's like the British or redcoats are running away. And I, some people, like you guys, are laughing. I watch that commercial, and I'm like, yeah, right. I'm like, that America, right? I'm like super excited about it, and I think I think it's awesome. And one of the things that was super convicting to me early on in my walk as a believer, as I was sitting in this talk, and, the, and this really, really, this awesome guy who loves the Lord named Dan Flynn just look, looked at us and said, are you a Christian who happens to be an American, or are you an American who happens to be a Christian? And then he went on, he's like, are you a Republican who happens to be a Christian, or a Christian who happens to be a Republican? Are you a Democrat that happens to be a Christian, or are you a Christian that happens to be a Democrat? And he said, if any one of those things is listed before Christian, that's a problem. And I remember sitting there thinking for like the first time in my life, someone had really challenged my idolatry of my own country. Daniel challenged with that. Remember, he grew up in Babylon. He has a lot of things going for him being on the Babylonian court. But when challenged with country and king or God, he chooses the Lord. Because he's believed in the faithfulness of what God has done in the past and has used that, the promises of God's past faithfulness to encourage him to trust in the future promises of God's goodness and his grace. The same God that delivered my great, 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 great grandfather Abraham will be used to rescue and deliver me. The same God who rescued and delivered David will rescue and deliver me. And he continues to rest in the, the faithfulness of who God is and trust in him, and he gets arrested. And this is the part where Daniel is the hero, right? He's to be admired here, and what he does is amazing. But what motivates him is not some self-actualized version of his own will and power, but who God is. God is still even the hero of what Daniel does because it's God's faithfulness that drives him to continue to trust in God in the first place. You know, it would be really foolish if God had not came through on his promises for Israel time and time again, but God has. And so in that, Daniel sees that and says, I don't care where I am, I don't care where I grew up, I don't care who my king is, and I don't care what my job is. If it comes down to God or them, I'm going to choose God because that's always the correct side to be on. And I'm going to walk faithfully. And so we hear this and we're like, Daniel is this great, great hero. Be like Daniel. Reach deep, deep inside yourself and exercise the type of faith that Daniel has so that we can all be these amazing Daniels walking around in our lives, right? And the church will just be on fire all the time for the Lord because we'll all be like him. But if you read the rest of the story from here on out, Daniel is an afterthought. He's a, a, a supporting actor in the remaining portion of what happens in his life. Look what happens. 
Right? Look at verse 14. Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel. And he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is the law of the Medes and the Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. So Darius is like, oh my gosh, I love Daniel. He's, he's a great, trustworthy partner as I run the kingdom. What have I done? <laughs> i got to find a way to save this guy. And his other officials and political leaders are like, whoa, 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 king. You knew what you were signing. You need to follow through on your word. You knew what you, knew what you were getting into. You need to follow through. And so the king is at a crossroads in his love for Daniel and yet his need to appear kingly and follow through on his word. And so we get to verse 16 and look at what he says to Daniel. Then the king commanded and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. And the king declared to Daniel, and I love this part. May your God whom you serve continually deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. He says to Daniel, may your God deliver you. But I've got to put you, I've, I've got to sentence you to death because of the law. And then Darius leaves the den entrance, and his response to me is one of the more amazing things that happens in the Old Testament. He starts appealing to Daniel's God, who he does not know, whom he does not worship, who he does not believe in, to save Daniel. He starts fasting. Guys, fasting was not something the Babylonians did. <laughs> that, that is something that Israel did. It was a part of some of their ceremonial uh, rituals, and it was something they did to show their dedication and love for God and to hear from Him and to allow themselves clarity to focus on Him. He possibly prayed. He refused to be interrupted, and so he didn't sleep the whole night. Guys, think about the kind of impact Daniel and his love for the Lord had to have had on King Darius for him to respond this way. That Daniel's faithfulness caused in the king to fast and pray and be sleepless over the life of Daniel and petition to Daniel's God to rescue him. Throw up Matthew chapter 5, uh, verse 14 and 16 for me. Because this is the type of thing, Daniel's life is the type of thing that, that Jesus is talking about all believers can, are. He says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father 
who is in heaven. Jesus is saying, hey, your life matters. And the way you live your life is going to be declaring something to those around you. It's either going to be declaring a deep, abiding love, trust, and faith in God, or it's not. Have any, are any of you guys ever familiar with that saying, um, speak the gospel at all times and when necessary, use words? Yeah, some of you guys are. Right? I actually hate that saying, right? because you can never actually fully share the gospel with somebody without words. Okay, But there is some truth in that as well, that the life you live and the way that you live your life will be someone's first impression of who your God is. And that Darius' first impression of Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is he comes through, and he comes through to the point that my own members of my court, the one I love and care about deeply, would choose that God over me, who's given him everything from a worldly perspective. What a powerful testimony. And as Darius sits there and wrestles with this, knowing that Daniel's life mattered, but not knowing if Daniel's even going to be saved, he weeps and cries out to God to show up. And God does. Look at verse... 19. Then at the break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions, and he came near to the den where Daniel was. He cried out in a tone of anguish, and the king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouth. And they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him and also before you. O king, I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God. And the king commanded, and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions. They, their children, and their wives, and before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. We usually don't share that last part with kids. God rescues Daniel. And it wasn't because Daniel had perfect faith <laughs> or was some perfect person. But God had uniquely placed Daniel in this situation to put his power on display. Say, keeping lions from eating someone over the course of a night is nothing to somebody who spoke the universe into existence. <laughs> and as Daniel sits in there, over the course of the night, right, knowing that it's here, yet Darius sits back in his throne room, worried and afraid. 
And he, when he comes there and he experiences the joy of his friend and partner Daniel being alive, he's overcome, right? He punishes those who tricked him and put Daniel in there in the first place with this law. But guess what's happened to Darius at this point? He now has fully tasted and seen the faithfulness of God, of God in his life. See, the hero of this story is what, is what God does to Darius in the midst of everything else going on. Yes, Daniel's faith is amazing, but earlier on in the book of Daniel, three other guys exercise great faith and are thrown in a den of fire and sit there laughing as the fire is consuming them and then they come out unscathed. The faithfulness of people throughout the Old Testament is a consistent theme, but faithfulness is nothing without the faithfulness of who that faith is being put in. Right? I have a lot of faith in the Washington Redskins. They suck. They fail me all the time. Right? Did my pastor just say suck? Yes. Okay. They fail me all the time. Right, this is why putting your faith in things that are not God always backfires. Right? You have great faithfulness in your parents. I had great faithfulness in my parents until first grade when my dad forgot to pick me up from school. Never again. Sitting there crying in the office. It must have been so awkward for that poor secretary. She kept trying to, he's going to come get you. No, he's not. You know, mom and dad are never coming back again. I'm going to be stuck at school forever. Right? But faithfulness in other people, right? And they can do great things, and you can have a great relationship, but they inevitably, at the end of the day, at some point, will fail you. Right? A lot of you guys in here know my wife. I married up big time. She's beautiful. She loves the Lord. She's sweet. She keeps me balanced. And there have been times where she has failed me. Less than I failed her. But there have been times where she has failed me. Right? My kids. I love them. I want to be a great dad. I'm excited about who God's growing them to be. A lot of parents put all their faith in their parenting and what they're doing with their kids. Guess what? They're human beings that sin. They're going to fail you. Some of you guys know what that's like to have parents who have put that kind of pressure on you. You're trying to work through that and forgive your parents for doing that to you. The reality is, is unless your faith is put in something that's worth your faithfulness, you will be left wanting. And Daniel's faith was placed in the Lord and God always comes through. Now, we can argue if he comes through in the way that you want. I would imagine Daniel probably did not want to get thrown into the den of lions. Just like I would imagine you might not want cancer. I would imagine you might not want to lose your job. I would imagine you might not want to walk through miscarriage or divorce or the loss of a relationship or the loss of a loved one. No one signs up for that kind of thing. The same way Daniel didn't sign up to get thrown into a den of lions or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego didn't want to sign up to get thrown into a pit of fire. But that doesn't mean God has left the building. 
that God's faithfulness remains and stays true. And Daniel is alive and the king rejoices. And this is why it's so shocking to me that when we read this story, we attribute all of the honor and all of the attention to Daniel because everything after he's put in the pit is God-centric. And even beforehand, when Daniel's language is God-centric and King Darius's language is God-centric, no one's saying, hey, Daniel, because you are the greatest Israelite alive, let's hope you make it. They don't appeal to Daniel's performance. Who do they appeal to? They appeal to the God whom Daniel performs for. And so as they appeal to God's faithfulness, the language of Daniel chapter 6 is not Daniel-centric, it's God-centric. This is why we must fight in the scriptures every time our tendency to make what we're reading about us or about the men and women that we're reading about. Because the Bible was not written for Daniel, it was not written for David, it was not written for Abraham, it was written for and about God and who he is. And Daniel is one more example in the unfolding narrative of the Bible. Your God is good and he is faithful. Trust him. He always comes through in the end. God is the hero of this story. Focus on him. The way that Darius does here at the end. Look, I, I think from what I read here, King Darius is converted. He sees the power of God put on display, and look at what he does. He repents of his sin by punishing those that made him declare an edict to have himself be worshipped. And then look at the injunction that he passes instead. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth. He wrote to everyone. He didn't even just write to the Babylonians. He's like, yeah, Egyptians, just want to let you know what's going on over here. Hey, people, people out in China and East Asia, guess what just happened back here in, ba in Babylon? Guess, guess what's going on here? God showed up. We've seen him. He's here and he's real. Guess what he did? He, he, he answered my prayer. He rescued Daniel. He put his power on display. And this is what he says. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Right, Proverbs says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and wisdom. 
the first time King Darius sees clearly as he fears and reveres the God of the Bible. And what does he realize? This God is all-powerful. He's all-knowing. My kingdom is nothing in comparison to his kingdom. His kingdom will last forever, and he's a God who saves and rescues. It's just who he is. It's in his DNA. It's who we know him to be. God's faithfulness to Daniel saves Darius. The same way that I think about people who had impact on my life and me coming to know the Lord, God's faithfulness to those people is what I found so attractive. Yes, their faith caused me to take notice, but God's faithfulness to them in the midst of that is what was beautiful. Their testimony of God's richness of love towards them is what is so beautiful. Guys, the same thing that we have seen since August when we started working on this series is God is at the center of the entire Bible and He is a God who saves, a God who's true, and a God who comes through and rescues. I love the language here. Look at what He says. He is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed. He's clearly not talking about Israel. Israel's been destroyed already. He did it. Well, the king before him did. He's using the type of language that Isaiah used. And his dominion shall be to the end. He will, this king, <laughs> he, God will always be king. No one will ever be king over him. He will always be king. He delivers and rescues he works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. Guys, who does this sound like? Jesus. Exactly. The pagan king of Babylon is preaching about Jesus. He has an everlasting kingdom that shall never be destroyed. He will deliver and rescue. He will work signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. Now, you guys are going to wonder, how are you going to draw Jesus out of that one right there? Who is Satan compared to in the, in the New Testament? A prowling lion waiting to devour. And guess who died in your place to give Satan no rule and dominion and authority over you? Jesus. The story of Daniel is one small story in the midst of one big, huge, grand narrative of God's faithfulness to his creation that fully culminated in Jesus Christ coming to live, do signs and wonders, both in heaven and on earth, but finally giving his own life to rescue you from your own sin and subsequent death. This story is just a foreshadow to Jesus. Guys, Daniel's not the true hero. Jesus is. The Father is. The Holy Spirit is. God's work 
in Daniel is but a foreshadow to what he would do in Jesus and the faithfulness that so many of you have gotten to see as you've walked faithfully with him. As we take communion and reflect, reflect on your testimony and what God has done in your life. Reflect on God's faithfulness to you and others and may you use it to make much of him. The way that Daniel's testimony does, the way that King Darius' testimony does, it's all for him. All of it. Your life exists to make much of your creator. May you leave here knowing that that creator loves you and rescued you. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for every person in this room this morning, and I pray that your word was an encouragement to them. God, your faithfulness is just who you are. It's not like you wake up in the morning thinking like, man, I, I gotta be faithful today. I gotta, I gotta work really hard at this. And when you say something, you do it. And you have promised that in the life of your son in his death, burial, and resurrection, we are forgiven and received and adopted as sons and daughters into your kingdom and family. I pray that as we take communion this morning, that we would realize the great price and cost that came with that, which was the brutal beating and execution of Jesus Christ. That we would confess sin openly, that we would turn to you in repentance confessing our idols, confessing our sin and giving it over to you and then believing and trusting in you, Father, who sent your son to die for our sins and that we would trust in the sufficiency of what Jesus did on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins and that we would walk forward in faith in the resurrection of Jesus Christ as our future hope and future glory. Father, thank you for everyone here. I thank you that you love them infinitely more than I ever could. Thank you for all that you do. God, we love you and we ask this in Jesus' name.